Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. In Mark chapter 2 today, verses 18 through 22, hear the word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new one from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. I'm going to pray for uh, Billy Glosson, our lead pastor, as he leads us in the word this morning. God, you are so good to us every day in in seasons of cold, in seasons of warmth, um, in seasons of dark and light. God, you are always there. You are always present. We are always living before your face um, under the under the warmth of your of your gaze, in the fold of your grace and your mercy toward us. I pray that as we walk through this passage today, you would open our hearts and our minds to what you would have us hear, uh, to be challenged and, and encouraged in ways that are necessary. I pray that you would give Billy um, clarity of thought and mind. Um, Lord, just give him, um, give him discernment as he walks through the word this morning. And I pray that the spirit would work through him in ways that is necessary to reach us that we would be reminded of the richness and goodness of the gospel and how it is applicable to us now and in the present, uh, in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all. So we are, we are continuing on in the gospel of Mark. So again, as I was reading through this passage, Jesus talks about a wedding, and I think back to my own, and when I got married, it was probably the happiest day of my life. And if you guys have met my wife, Hannah, you know why. Uh, She's the best. I truly married up. And our wedding day was an absolute blast. It really, really was. I remember the day so vividly. During the morning, we got up early, my groomsmen and I, and we went to my favorite breakfast place. We, We shared a meal. We laughed. We were getting excited as we were getting ready together. And the jokes and the fun just continued as we headed to the church, dressed up to the nines, ready to go. But there was a point in the day that actually wasn't very fun for me at all. You see, my groomsmen and I were hanging out in the old sanctuary of this really large old church building, and they were asked to go and take photos with the bridesmaids. So Hannah and I, you know, a lot of people do the the reveal, the look, and then they'll take their pictures together so that everybody can eat and not have to wait forever for the bride and groom to get together. We decided to kick it old school. I wanted to see her for the first time coming down the aisle in her dress. Um, I I wanted it to be a special moment, so we decided to wait and see each other afterwards. So we were doing all these pictures separate of each other. Well, my groomsmen go to take pictures with the bridesmaids, with Hannah, and they start goofing off. Lunch shows up. They start eating lunch. They're having a good time. Meanwhile, I'm by myself, completely alone, for almost two hours, having a panic attack, wondering what I'm doing with my life. Not exactly, right? But I was freaking out. I was kind of like, all right, where are they at? 
man, am I ready for this? Like, what is it? I'm doing this. This is real. And it was a really intense moment when my groomsmen showed up and they're laughing, they're carrying sandwiches, high five and having a good time. And my buddy, Matt, who was in our wedding, looks at me and goes, wait a second, dude, have you been in here by yourself for two hours? And I responded pretty aggressively in hangry nervousness. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Two hours. Right? They forgot the groom. They forgot all about me. It's like, oh, yeah, there's this dude we're here for. That's right. Now, that's funny. And what makes it especially funny is that weddings are supposed to be a day of feasting, of celebrating, right? Not of isolation and terror. But... That was what happened for me. And Jesus, he points to his coming into the world being like a wedding feast, right? It's it's supposed to be a day of celebration. It's supposed to be a day of joy. And it's out of place for people to be bummed out, to be melancholy, just kind of bummed at a wedding. They're supposed to be rejoicing. They're supposed to be celebrating. Well, today, what we come to is a controversial moment in Jesus's ministry. Really, there's a lot of these all throughout chapter two into chapter three. They're filled with all of these moments of controversy, and Jesus tackles each one of them beautifully. Here, we come to a question of fasting, in which Jesus is going to dismantle the ideals of the religious elite and show that Jesus, well, he changes everything. The coming of Jesus, it brought a new day. It brought a new wine. And with his coming, everything is new. And so today, again, what I want us to simply see is this. Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. The first thing we see this morning is Jesus came to bring joy, not sorrow. Jesus came to bring joy, not sorrow. Look back at the passage with me. Look at verses 18 through 20. Now, Jesus's, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. This is, again, the third of five controversies that Jesus has with the religious leaders. At the beginning of chapter 2, we see the question is, who can forgive sins but God alone? And then last week, as he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers these questions with authority. However, the scribes and Pharisees miss the joy of Jesus's kingdom, right? They couldn't rejoice over a paralytic being healed. They couldn't rejoice over sinners being saved. All they saw was Jesus saying and doing things in the wrong way, or at least the wrong way to them. So very soon, again, as we get into chapter three, we're going to see they're going to start plotting against him, how they can destroy him, how they can end his life. And here they bring up the issue of fasting. Once more, in their opinion, Jesus is not getting it right. Why does he continue to upset them? Like, they, they just seem like they're so against him. Well, he tells them again that we, we shouldn't fast and we shouldn't mourn when it's time to celebrate. The disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees, they're fasting regularly, 
right? John's disciples, they're fasting in anticipation of the Messiah, right? John comes to be the forerunner, to speak the word, to announce that the gospel is coming, the king is coming. So they're fasting in anticipation. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are strictly observing all the ritual fasts prescribed in the Old Testament. But not only that, they decide, I'm going to be extra holy. I'm going to go above and beyond. And so they fast on Monday and Thursday. You guys will start doing that every week, Monday, Thursday, let's just fast. But I want to be pious, right? That's what the Pharisees did. They did this as an expression of their, their piety and their consecration. And so people start to observe this party that's going on at Levi's house. If you remember last week, I know we weren't together physically, but we talked about Levi, this kind of dirty, rotten scoundrel, this, this man who was taking advantage of people, meets Jesus, throws a huge party, invites all of his buddies who are sinners as well. They're celebrating, and the Pharisees are outside just frowning like Oscar the Grouch, pointing at this place saying, this is wrong, this is bad. And then once Jesus confronts them, calls them out, then they start to point out other things. Well, yeah, but you don't fast like we fast. They don't like what they see. So they come to Jesus with this really accusatory question, right? Verse 18, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples, they don't fast? In other words, what they're basically saying is, hey, Jesus, if you're so spiritual, why do you not make your followers live up to our high religious standards? Now, here's the thing that's interesting. Again, the only fast that's actually mandated in the Old Testament is on the Day of Atonement. And there were other fasts for various reasons, right? Expressing humility and repentance or preparing to inquire of God, but none of them were biblically mandated. So what the Pharisees do is they bring their own intentions, they bring their own piety, their own kind of resounding, we're going to be the best, and they start to, again, broadcast this. So it makes sense then that they would want to know, why are Jesus' disciples not like us? Right, because that's what the culture of the day said. The culture of the day said, be extra pious, go above and beyond, do as much as you can to earn and merit God's favor. Does God not care does, does he not care about what God thinks of us? And maybe John's disciples are thinking, hey, does he not care about the fact that we live under an oppressive Roman rule, that we're not in a, in a day and an age where things are happy-go-lucky, but it's hard? Does he not care about God's deliverance? But Jesus, again, he's not opposed to fasting. Again, he actually assumes that his followers are going to fast. He's, he assumes that their fasts are going to be genuinely directed to God, not a public display to earn praise of man, but to be something where they, they, they see their hearts being stirred and longing and remembering that God alone is their provision. God alone is the source of their joy, not to kind of gain favor or merit something that they already have. So Jesus responds with a parable. He starts with the first parable being about a bride and a bridegroom. He says, when his bridegroom is there, the wedding guests don't fast, right? It'd be real weird if you showed up to a wedding and it's like, hey, guys, um, so here's the deal. We're doing intermittent fasting, and um, we're, we're just not going to do anything, you know. We're, we're just going to kind of hang out and celebrate. We're going to do the whole ceremony thing, and then afterwards we're just going to get together, and we're going to have a bunch of LaCroix. It's going to be great, right? You'd be really bummed. You'd be like, I'm not staying for that. Like, we're leaving after the ceremony. We're peacing out. You go to a wedding, you expect to celebrate, to feast, to rejoice, to dance, to sing, to eat. And Jesus says it'd be so out of place to fast at a wedding. 
But the time is going to come when the groom will be taken away, and then, then that's when they will fast. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm here now with my followers, and like a wedding feast, this is a joyous occasion where the bridegroom and his friends, we celebrate, we don't mourn, right? Probably a bad idea to show up to a wedding you know, and start bawling and mourning because you know, you, that's not really the, the spirit of the wedding. Fasting would be inappropriate, be out of the question. Jesus' presence, it's a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. It's not a time of sorrow and sadness. Here's the thing, Corbdeo. We should heed this. We should hear Jesus' words. A relationship with Jesus is not a solemn, boring affair. Like, it isn't. You know how many Christians just look like they're miserable all the time? Yeah, I got to show up to church and read my Bible and... I guess. It's like we, we kind of treat walking with Jesus like it's the most melancholy, awful thing in the world. And, and, and that's just totally opposite of what Jesus says, that when we know Jesus, it's to be a celebration, right? There's a spiritual banquet when we come to meet Jesus. There's rejoicing in heaven. There's joy and blessing, right? Of course, we should strive to be holy, but we cannot be somber, There's a difference, right? You can strive to follow God to be righteous, but you can also throw good parties, okay? You can strive to follow God and and make sure that you're living not in sin, but also really love your neighbors well and have a good time, right? We shouldn't be boring. If anything, Christians have more reason to celebrate, more reason to rejoice than anybody on the planet period, because we have new life. We have joy and joy abundantly, right? We should desire holiness, but not become legalists. We should pursue righteousness, but not become stern. Why? Because there's joy in Jesus. So friends, do not mourn when it is time to celebrate. There's a time for fasting and all that goes with it, right? When the groom is taken away. Now, this is kind of the first allusion in the gospel of Mark to Jesus's death. It's when joy is going to be exchanged for sorrow, when celebration will turn to mourning. And this is really an abrupt and surprising image because in a normal wedding, the guests are the one who eventually leave. But Jesus, he interjects this kind of bizarre idea that the groom is just going to, in the middle of the wedding, disappear. That would be odd. That would be sad. Kind of we see already over Jesus' ministry hang the storm clouds of contempt, the storm clouds of oppression from the scribes and the Pharisees. They're frustrated because Jesus forgave sin. Now he's consorting with sinners. And Jesus is aware of the consequences of his action. He's aware of his future confrontation with the authorities. Like Isaiah's servant of the Lord, Jesus too is going to be cut off from the land of the living. The kingdom of God has made a personal appearance in Jesus, but the final victory has not yet been realized. In order to overcome sin and death, the bridegroom first must become their victim. The reference to the bridegroom being taken away from the disciples and their subsequent fasting, it's it's surely an exhortation to perseverance. And again, we've got to remember the context of the Gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark is being written to a people who are living under the oppressive rule of Nero. Okay, so they are literally hiding in catacombs, fearful for their life when they read this gospel. And Mark is telling the church at Rome, hey, listen, there are going to be days when Jesus is going to feel really far from you. 
Just as the father was far from Jesus in his passion, remember that the bridegroom, our Lord Jesus, was going to be snatched away to suffer alone on a cross, to atone for sins, to die the death that you and I should have died, to pay the price for sin that we should have paid. He died in our place. He bore my wrath. He took on my judgment. God killed his son so that he would not have to kill me. That is an appropriate time to mourn. Right? There's an appropriate time to fast and mourn, and it's when you and I consider the infinite price paid for by, the, by our sin that Jesus took on on the cross of Calvary. It's when we consider all that God has done for me, that he alone is the source of our comfort. He alone is the source of our joy. That is when we go to God and we say, I'm going to deny myself so that I can have more of you and less of me so that I can see that, yes, I need something from outside of me to come inside of me and give me life, give me sustenance. But I'm going to deny myself that because truly what I need more than anything is you. That's earnest, right godly fasting not fasting that we do in piety to manipulate god to do our bidding or so that other people think we're awesome jesus is challenging them with this illustration he's saying hey look right now is the time to rejoice there's gonna come a day when it's time to realize hey i need to mourn i need to fast and for the church in rome who's hiding in catacombs they hear this and they say we somehow in this crazy way, can have immense hope and joy because we know the bridegroom has gone before us. And yet we can still mourn and long for more of God. Jesus goes on. He challenges them with the illustration and then he gives them another telling parable. He looks at a garment and he looks at new wine. So second, we see Jesus came to make things new, not to perpetuate the old. Jesus came to make things new, not to perpetuate the old. Look at verses 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine will be destroyed and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. So now the imagery shifts to two really concise parables. The connection here is to Jesus and what his coming means. Jesus comes to save sinners, not the self-righteous. Jesus comes to bring gladness, not sadness. The pertinent question isn't why Jesus' disciples did not fast. The question is, why do the Pharisees not feast? Why are they not rejoicing? Why are they not celebrating the presence of the Messiah? Jesus is saying, I've come to make all things new, not perpetuate the old. With the coming of the Messiah, Judaism has to give way to Christianity, and rightly so. For in Jesus, the Hebrew faith finds its fulfillment and its completion. False religion, it's like an old garment that needs to be thrown away. In the first parable... There's this attempt to unite the gospel of Jesus with the old religion of Judaism, right? The example here is Pharisees' ritualistic fasting. This is an old, foolish garment, right? That's like taking a patch, 
right, a brand new patch and sewing it on an old worn out garment. What happens is when the new piece becomes wet, it's going to shrink and it's going to tear away and make an even larger hole. With the coming of Jesus, everything is new. The old has been replaced with something not only new, but something better. To continue to try and prop it up and give it a new face is useless. It's futile. When the real thing has arrived, we do not continue to worship the shadow. To do so is to create a false religion, one that can't save. Right? False religion, he also says, is like old wineskins that can't contain new wine. And what does that mean, right? Because you don't go to the grocery store and say, let me get a wineskin. You know, you don't do that. You're not like, give me a goat skin of your finest wine. Maybe you do at a Renaissance fair, but not at the grocery store, okay? See, in the ancient world, the skins of goats were stripped off as, a near, as nearly as whole as they possibly could, and then they would fill it with new wine. Here's why they did that. Because it was real stretchy. And when it was elastic and flexible and it was strong, it would contain this new wine that would ferment and it would cause the wine skin to expand. And so it would actually hold it together, right? Maybe you see this now at a grocery store. If you get a Belgian bottle of beer, it's going to have like a little lip in it to contain the pressure so it doesn't explode. That's the idea that Jesus is trying to paint here. The parable, this parable and the one about the patch, what they're illustrating is this radical new era of Jesus. Jesus, he's the new cloth. Jesus, he's the new wine. He's not an attachment. He's not an addition. He's not an appendage to the status quo. He cannot be integrated into or, or, or contained by pre-existing structures. Right? Even Judaism, even the Torah and the synagogue. The question, friends, is not whether the Pharisees are going to add Jesus' teaching to their lists of traditions and rituals, like sewing a new patch on an old garment. The question is, are they going to forsake the shadow of the old covenant and embrace the reality of the new? It's not a question of whether the disciples are going to incorporate Jesus in their old way of life, like refilling an old container, but whether they're going to become entirely new. Are they going to become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives? Coram Deo, the question is posed to you and I. Have you sought to add Jesus to your old way of life? Let me explain what I mean by that. See, Josh already mentioned this in the welcome. This is what happens is you and I, we compartmentalize our lives, right? Sunday is for Jesus. You know, Monday is, is a day of work. Saturday's mine. You know, Tuesday night's the kids because they got dance class. And we kind of have these different spaces of our life where we're different people in each space. And that's kind of messed up. Because if Jesus isn't king over our whole life, then we're taking new wine and we're dumping it into old wineskins. Now listen, we intentionally chose a weird name, right? When we, when we were moving here to plant a church, you know, I knew we could be blank church. Now I'm not picking on any church that, that has a, a one word name or any of these different things. That's fine. I just wanted to have a church that would make people go say what? So that we could have a conversation. 
So we chose this name that is, is Coram Deo, right? It's a name that is actually steeped in Reformation tradition, right? The Reformers loved this idea. Martin Luther said it summed up the Christian life. It, it's it's a, a rich historical name, but it's also very unfamiliar to those of us who don't happen to speak Latin, which is most of us. And if you were to go to our website, you'd find this write-up about our name. The name Coram Deo means presence of God or before the face of God. And it's an idea that living in God's presence, living before his face, it encapsulates the Christian life. You see, to live Coram Deo is to live our entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in God's presence, to understand that all of my life is under his gaze. That whatever I set to do, I set to do in the presence of the omnipresent God. There's nowhere you can go where you can escape God's presence. Right? We, we think we get away from God when we live in sin. We think like, well, this is truly mine. But all we're doing is, again, deceiving ourselves. Living Coram Deo is a sober understanding of the sovereignty of God. Understanding that if God is God, then he's sovereign. Our lives are to be lived in his presence as living sacrifices, that we offer ourselves in a spirit of adoration and gratitude. We understand that if our lives are truly lived Coram Deo, then they're not fragmented, but they're lives of wholeness that we find our unity and our coherency in the majesty of God, knowing that this, a fragmented life, right? A life that says, well, this is mine. That's for the kids. I'll give this to my spouse. Here, Jesus, you can have this much. That's a life that's fragmented and truly, friends, that's a life of disintegration. That's what that is. It's a life where you're gonna run out and you're gonna be exhausted. That new wine's gonna wanna grow in that old wineskin and it's gonna cause you to burst, to live Coram Deo, what it means is we are every single bit as spiritual as a drywaller, as a brewer, as an insurance agent, as a homemaker than we are as a pastor or church planner. Because everything we do, we do to the glory of God. To live Coram Deo is to live a life in which all that is done is done unto the Lord. So whether you're swinging a hammer or you're cracking open a Bible, we can do all of this to God's glory. And we must, because Jesus has come to make all things new. And what we can try and do is just sow Jesus on to our tattered and torn lives. What ends up happening is we rip to shreds. The wineskin bursts. We need Jesus to completely and totally remake us, rebuild us. We need completely new lives. We need to be a new creation, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So friend, let me tell you this. If you walk away this morning and you say, yeah, but, you know, I don't really want to give Jesus everything. Then you're giving Jesus nothing. You cannot deceive yourself to think that if you just give Jesus a piece of your life, that you're walking in right relationship with him. Look, this is why we push community groups a lot. It's not just because we like to, you know, sit outside with each other. It's not just because we want to hang out, right? We need community, but why? Because we want more of Jesus. Jesus tells us in his word that we were built for each other and that if we truly want to walk with Jesus, if we truly want to give him all of our lives, that the way to do that well is to do that in the context of community. And we don't just get together for community's sake. Right? If, we, if we just do community for community's sake, man, we can go anywhere else. 
and do that. We do community so that we get Jesus, so that we can share in his goodness and his glory. Friends, I would petition you, if you are not in God's word, if you are not praying, if you are not connected to community, why are you fragmenting your life and giving Jesus a portion? Would we give Jesus all of us? Would we see that Jesus changes everything? And friends, this doesn't lead us to sadness. It's not saying, oh yeah, those things you enjoy, forget them. It's saying redeem those things. Do those things to the glory of God. Change the vessel. This joy, it's growing, it's going forth into the world and it's bearing fruit. It cannot be grafted onto brittle, inflexible institutions. The gospel, again, it's not just for Jews. It's also for the Greeks. It's also for the Gentiles. It's for the unclean. It's for the ungodly. It's for the outcasts. The gospel, it's for the losers. All that came before is fulfilled now in Jesus. The light by nature cannot be confined to the shadows. It has to spill out. It has to shine forth. There's a time for fast, but... Those united to Christ were not typified by grief, but by joy. Yes, even in hardship, we have joy. And that means that joy must run deep. And if joy runs deep, then it will overflow and it will run wide. When we have this deep joy, we can navigate seasons of suffering. We can navigate seasons of brokenness with both the firmness of faith and also the flexibility of it. Right? We are able to confidently say that this day, with all of its troubles, with all of its baggage, with all of its masks, with all of its shouting and fighting and political nonsense, is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Why? Because we know that joy is so deep that it will buoy our souls for all eternity. The ferment of the gospel needs the wineskin of the church, which is going to be made up of all people. Right, the Jewish ceremonial laws and temple systems, they're no longer sufficient for the purposes of God's glory, covering the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. The ferment of the gospel needs the wineskin of missional adaptability, that our traditions, our structures, they must serve the joy of Christ and his kingdom, not the other way around. Did you catch that? Our traditions, our structures, your life, the things that you enjoy, the things that you do must serve the joy of Christ and his kingdom, not the other way around. The ferment of the gospel, right? The ferment of gospel joy needs the new wineskin of new hearts. We must be born again to a new creation. As we look to however many more days God is going to grant us for ourselves and as Christians and for the sake of Coram Deo Church, let us commit to the proclamation of the gospel, that it would settle deep into our bones, soaking into the marrow, enlarging our hearts, that we might run and spreading the news that Jesus Christ is king and that cast aside all that hinders us. We don't need that junk anymore, including even religious churchy things. We dump those things aside so that we might have more of him. And when the gospel changes our attitude to depths of joy, it changes the latitude of our missional boundaries to widespread transformation. This, friends, is the joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is the world into which the parables are windows. We see in these little stories these, these little pictures that God's big biblical story of redemption is coming true. 
That joyful restoration of the cosmos, that joyful expansion of the sovereignty of King Jesus and the joyful redemption of sinful exiles, it's all coming true. It is coming true through, in, and by Jesus Christ. Even so, we long for him. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, so often we fragment our lives. We, we think that we can just add you on top of our lives. We think we can just give you a portion and somehow you'll fit into our old, beaten up, broken lives. But Jesus, you don't call us to shame. You call us to joy. You say, give me that broken life and I'll give you a new one. One that can actually grow and expand one where joy will overflow, one where there is hope, one where there is newness and richness. God, this morning, as there are so many of us, I can can even just feel the tension of like, I kind of want to hold on to my old life. God, would we cast those things aside? Would we lay them down at your feet? And Lord, would you make us new? God, would you bring newness and richness, we pray. Lord, I ask that you would stir our hearts and compel us to obedience. That we would leave here new vessels filled to the brim with your goodness and glory. That we would hold on to none of our old way of life, but that we would truly live quorum Deo before your face, in your presence, living lives of joy. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.